morning, everybody. Welcome to Celebration. Glad you're here. Happy New Year. 2016. Who knew, right? We're here. Um, glad everybody's here this morning. If you're just visiting with us, my name's Jim, one of the pastors here. I'm super glad you're with us. A uh, couple things I want to tell you about before we jump into the scripture this morning. Three things. Um, first, you may see this. You may have noticed this giant wooden structure on our stage. May have not, um, since there's so much other things on here. Um, we're in the process of redecorating, so we're going to have a blank slate. But um, you probably remember, if you've been here for a while, that we had this up when we were raising money uh, to put a roof on a school with Village Schools in, uh, International in uh, Central Africa. Um, and we did that, and that was awesome. But now we are also working on raising money to put a roof on this place right here. So um, we're going to have this up here to keep track of, uh, of how the progress is coming along. And so I want to encourage you to remember uh, that we as a congregation, if you consider yourself part of this, we as a congregation committed to, uh, to raising this money. There's a tracker on the back of your bulletin um, and a tracker here. So uh, check it out, and we'd love for you to be a part of that. Um, the, next, the next thing, sorry. On Saturday... Uh, we are going to be starting our membership classes. And so if you are at all interested in becoming a member of Celebration Bible Church, or if you just want to know more about Celebration Bible Church, about uh, where the church started, some of the things that we believe, how we're structured as a church, um, I invite you to join us for our membership class. We're going to be at least two weeks, maybe three. Uh, we're going to meet on Saturday mornings from 9 to 11 right here. And I promise there will be donuts and coffee. So if that doesn't get you there, I don't know what will. So that's starting this Sunday or this Saturday at 9 a.m. And so if you want to know more, uh, come and, and let me know so, uh, so we can be waiting for you. So we're excited about that. Third, um, all of our stuff, our Wednesday activities begin this Wednesday after the new year has begun. And so uh, Awana's back and that's exciting and that's good. Uh, but we're also going to be doing a new series in our Bible study. We spent the fall doing something called Readers United, where we read through the New Testament together, and that was awesome. I know many of you uh, did that, even though you weren't all able to come, and so that's great. Uh, Even if you didn't make it all the way through, I hope you at least read more of your Bible through this program than you would have otherwise, and so that's great. Um, But we didn't get a chance to get to the book of Revelation. Revelation's a pretty intense, kind of confusing and complicated and uh, divisive book, Uh, But it's super important, and so we are going to spend the entire spring digging into the book of Revelation. I'm going to be teaching that alongside uh, Joe, our pastoral intern. So uh, I encourage you to join us if you're at all interested in the book of Revelation. We're going to be meeting 6.30 to 7.30 on Wednesday night starting this week right back in this room back here. So uh, join us for that. So that's some stuff coming up, but today uh, I'm really excited about uh, talking a little bit with you guys this morning uh, about a theme that's going to sort of be a touch point uh, for the rest of the year as we kind of go through our year of teaching together. We're going to be kind of looking back and connecting it to this idea that we're going to present this morning. So uh, if you plan to come to any other Sunday services this year, you're at a good one today, so (laughs) that's good. We're going to start here. Um, So we're going to talk Uh, about cafeterias and encyclopedias, Uh, then we're going to talk about creation, and then we're going to bring it home with a passage that Paul uh, reflects on. So let's start with a word of prayer, and then we'll get going. Uh, God, as we come to you this morning, uh, we do so with anticipation, knowing that your scripture uh, truly is alive and powerful, and when we allow it uh, to penetrate us, uh, it can change our lives. And so we pray that as we uh, discuss some of these things this morning, 
that you help us uh, to learn, you help us to grow, you help us to be open uh, to the possibility of, of you changing our lives in maybe a subtle but maybe a radical way. So pray all of these things in your name. Amen. Um, I can remember a time, it was probably about 10 years ago, I was uh, a student at Grace Bible College just down the street here in Wyoming. Um, and we, uh, if you've ever been to the college, uh, you go into the cafeteria, uh, you go through the food line, you eat, and then when you're done eating, like all good responsible college students, you bring uh, your tray with all your dirty dishes up and you put it in this dish pit, right? Pretty common cafeteria style. Um, and so we, we were doing this and everything was fine, uh, but one day... I'm pretty sure this was during the spring semester. Uh, There was a a little bit of a scent, a smell that was slightly unpleasant coming from the area around the dish, the dish pit. And most of us were just like, well, that makes sense, right? We don't want to know what goes on behind those doors. And so we're just going to kind of leave it. Holly Ratsky knows what goes on behind this. So we just kind of, we just kind of leave it. And it's like, all right, that's fine. Uh, But every day, uh, this scent this aroma or this odor became stronger and stronger. And after a week or so, it was pretty clear that this wasn't like somebody left uh, an onion out too long or this wasn't food, but there was something else going on here. Uh, And it got to the point where we'd have like conversations about this at our, our table. Like you could only smell it. It was really strange. You could only smell it when you got near this certain area. You could sit in this side of the cafeteria, you'd be fine. And so we'd be sitting here, and we'd be talking about our strategy for how we were going to bring our dishes to the dish bay in the most efficient and quick way so that we didn't have to smell that smell any longer than we had to. Uh, and so we would, like, uh, put all, make sure everything was all, like, clean and, like, in piles so that we could run and, like, hold our breath and just dump everything off really quickly and bust out. The smell had gotten so bad Uh, that it was actually changing our habits. It was forcing us to do something in a different way because of how disruptive uh, this smell was. And so eventually it gets bad enough uh, that uh, the higher-ups decide to send Nate Johnson, who is the maintenance guy at GBC, uh, to go track this smell down. Uh, And he crawls underneath the deck that butts up to the cafeteria, and he finds underneath there uh, some sort of rodent. I think it was a raccoon. Uh, is that right, Brian? Do you remember this? <laughs> That's because you eat in the staff cafeteria. You don't have to <laughs> be with us peasants. <laughs> uh, I believe this was a raccoon that had met his end and decided to uh, decompose <laughs> underneath the cafeteria. And so this smell of just rotting animal, sorry to, to make it so gross, uh, just penetrated the cafeteria to the point where it was so disruptive that it made us change the things that we did. Uh, We constructed our traveling time around uh, this smell. When we talk about things that are disruptive, uh, this is the idea that often comes to mind. It's something uh, that happens that generally is not good, uh, but something that causes other people or the things around uh, you to to change. Um, Maybe sometimes we think of people as disruptive, uh, if you're a teacher, maybe you have students who are like me uh, in that often we're told they are disruptive to the class, right? Uh, the reason that we, we don't like being labeled this is because uh, we feel it's a bad thing. We feel that people have to change uh, what they do and how they do things to be around us. So basically, when we talk about this idea of disruption, uh, 
the simplest, uh, simplest concept is to think of disruption as something that forces a response, right? Usually, this is in a negative way. If somebody is disruptive uh, in class or disruptive somewhere else, it forces other people to change what they're doing uh, in order to accommodate that person. Uh, but this isn't always a bad thing. So in 1995, uh, there's a guy who wrote an article and he coined a term, uh, disruptive technology. It, it, soon he changed it to this idea of disruptive innovation. Uh, maybe you, you've heard of this term before, but essentially the idea here uh, is that every now and then in the business world, a product or an idea or an innovation comes along uh, that challenges the existing structure or the existing market so much to the point that all of the competition has to react and change and respond in order to accommodate this innovation. That might be a little bit confusing, Uh, so let's break it down a little bit and talk about something that I'm sure all of you know. I can remember um, one point in my childhood, I was at the Evergreen State Fair uh, in Washington, and we were in the exhibition hall where people are, you know, selling you their Tupperwares and their chamois and all of that stuff. Uh, And we were sitting, and we were uh, hearing a sales presentation from a guy who wanted to sell us uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica. Anybody uh, ever sat through one of these presentations before where they explained to you how important these things are, they're going to make your child so much smarter, they're going to be able to write all their reports about cobras and whatever else they're doing in school. Uh, And so we sat and we listened to this, and kind of out of character from my parents, they actually bought it, right? So they spent, I don't know, hundreds Uh, maybe $1,000 to buy this huge set of encyclopedias uh, that we brought home. Uh, There were, you know, I think there was probably like 20 volumes of this massive encyclopedia uh, that would sit in our house. And on occasion, very rarely, (laughs) we'd go and we'd open the encyclopedia and we'd read it and we learned something from it. So we had this big encyclopedia. And for years and years and years and years, uh, this Encyclopedia Britannica was the leader in this industry, and everybody followed the rules that Encyclopedia Britannica set. But here's the problem with these things. First of all, they're massive, right? (laughs) Who wants to carry around big boxes of books everywhere? They're expensive. Uh, And so we probably bought these in the the early to mid-90s. There was a lot of changes that was happening in the world during the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, the whole map was essentially rewritten when uh, the USSR broke apart and all of these things happened. So as soon as major events like this take place, what happens to these encyclopedias? They become essentially obsolete, right? They're historical documents rather than current sense of information. And so this way of doing things, there were some flaws in it, but this was just the way that things were until... Uh, 2001, uh, there's a guy named Jimmy Wales, and him and a few friends got together and started talking, and they said, well, what if there was a different way to do this? What if there is a way where we could take all of the information that we would normally get from these physical book encyclopedias, put it on the internet, make it unlimited in size, because you don't have to carry it around, uh, make it free, and most importantly, make it instantly updatable? What if we could do this? Uh, And so they got together and they started uh, a website that you may or may not be familiar with called Wikipedia. And so Wikipedia comes out in 2001. Uh, The higher-ups at Encyclopedia Britannica 
uh, probably respond to this in the same way you respond to a fly hitting the windshield of your car, right? <laughs> like, oh, cool. So there's going to be a bunch of people writing a website on their own that's going to be on the internet. Sure, that's going to fly, right? Uh, they ignore it because like with a lot of disruptive innovations, at first they don't seem to be a threat, but pretty soon uh, the popularity of Wikipedia grew and grew and grew to the point where it became uh, one of the leading websites in the entire internet. Uh, and here's the crazy part. Uh, in 2012, after 244 years, Encyclopedia Britannica stopped printing physical editions of their encyclopedia. Why did they do that? <laughs> because Wikipedia disrupted their market. They said, we don't think that we have to play by those rules anymore, and so we're going to do it in a different way. We're going to do it in our way. Uh, the disruption of Wikipedia forced a new set of rules to be established where people now have to respond to how this is happening. We see this in a lot of areas. You maybe have heard of Uber, uh, the the car service. Uber is disrupting the taxi industry. Uh, there's, a lot, there's a lot of ways that we see this happening in the world. But essentially, with the disruption, a dis- disruptive innovation, it's an it's a invention or an idea or a product that causes everybody else to shift and change and play by a new set of rules. When I think about the Scriptures and the more and more I, I read and I learn uh, and I dive into the Scripture, uh, I think that fundamentally... Uh, the Bible is a story <laughs> that follows this flow of disruption. It presents these ideas of uh, disruptive, of new rules being set and people being forced to play by these new rules. And so I think probably the clearest way that we can see this is to just take a really brief 30,000-foot view uh, of the story of Scripture. And so let's start uh, where the Scripture starts in Genesis chapter 1. And I think we'll begin to see uh, this idea of disruption as a constructive force of change. Or at least a a force that causes everyone else to respond. So the Bible opens uh, in Genesis chapter 1. This is the first thing that we get to in the Scripture. Uh, And really what's going on here, and and if you are familiar at all with the Bible, you're probably familiar with what's happening here. Uh, It's the creation account. God is creating the world. Uh, But what's important here uh, is not so much like the physics or uh, how all of these things actually put together, the science behind all of it. That's cool, and you can can spend a lot of time studying that. But what's really important uh, is the premise that's being established here. Uh, The Bible begins... Uh, by stating that God brought all of this, all that we see, touch, taste, feel, say, God brought all of this into existence. So the origin of everything is in God. That's really the important take-home of Genesis 1. Um, But as you read it, um, there have been a lot of scholars lately that have seen this, uh, these six days of creation, really broken up into two parts. We see God bringing the matter into creation, right? God creating the heavens and the earth, God creating the light, God creating the land, God creating the waters, all of those things. But then we see God giving order to those things and creating a set of rules, giving purpose to those things. And so he creates the oceans and the skies. Then he creates what? The fish and the birds. And so there's a purpose. Now the sky, not only is it created, but now it has a job to do. 
The sky has a job of being the home to the birds. The land has a job of producing vegetation and producing things that can keep life alive. And so in short, what we see in creation is God bringing matter into existence, but then we see God creating a set of rules that the world is to live by. This uh, is the very first sense of disruption that we see in Scripture. And it's kind of bigger than any Wikipedia or Uber or whatever, uh, because what we see is God disrupting the nothingness in bringing order and bringing rules to the universe. Okay, so God is the one who sets the rules. God disrupts and he brings this in. Now, uh, in Genesis 1, uh, probably one of the most important sections of this scripture is, is verse 28 of chapter 1. After God has created all of these things and he's created man, uh, he says this, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the birds and the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath and life in it, Life in it, I give every green plant for food, and it was so. And so God has already created man, but what is he doing here? He's setting the rules. He's blessing them and saying, okay, now this is what you're supposed to do. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over these things, be a gentle steward, uh, an ultimate steward over this earth. Okay? So God creates, and then he puts order. He puts rules. God disrupts the nothingness by saying, this is the rules and what you must play by. But if you're familiar with Genesis 1, you're probably also familiar with Genesis 3, right? Uh, Things don't stay so peachy and good for long. In Genesis chapter 3, which if you're following along in our Bibles, is conveniently on page 3, things start to unravel. We are introduced to a character called the serpent, uh, and like we're not told a whole lot about the physics of creation, we're not really told a whole lot about the origin of uh, this serpent at this point in the story. All we know is that he's there, uh, and we know that he's doing things that seem to go contrary to the rules that God just established. And so uh, the serpent, of course, many of you know the story, right? He convinces Eve to break one of these rules that God set. And so she eats fruit from the tree that she's told not to. Then she gives that fruit to her husband who also eats. And we see for the first time uh, something bad happening here. There were these rules. And what has just happened? Disruption, right? The rules have been broken, but they've been broken to a point that now things are going to have to adjust to this new way of thing, uh, this new way of, of existence. And so as you read through chapter uh, 3, you see this account, but uh, just like the end of chapter 1 is important, the end of, or the middle here of chapter 3 is important. So in verse 14, after we're told of all of these things that happen, it says this, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and of all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly. You will eat dust for the rest of your life. And he goes on from there to curse the serpent. But then, verse 16, to the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. 
With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat, right? The rules. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since you were taken from, or since you were taken, for the dust, for dust you are, into dust you will return. What do we see happening here? There's a new set of rules. Uh, the disruption of sin forced an adjustment. Uh, just like the disruption of the smell, the aroma, forced us to change the things we do. Obviously, this is a little bit bigger scale uh, than a dead raccoon under the cafeteria. Uh, but uh, this is the concept here. Now, notice who ultimately still has the authority here. Who is making the rules? God, right? Sin is not making the rules. Sin uh, is the one that was the origin of this disruption. But God himself still holds the ultimate authority. But in uh, the disruption of the garden, what's important to take home here uh, is that in this event, the rules have changed. There's been a forced adjustment uh, to what's going on. And so the story of Scripture then uh, expands on this. If you just go into the next couple stories, you see uh, Cain and Abel. You see the first murder. Uh, Pretty soon we see sexual immorality. Uh, Pretty soon we see lying and deceit and all of these horrible, horrible things uh, that are a result of this disruption. But at the same time, what we also see uh, is God immediately beginning this plan in which he is going to once again (laughs) disrupt the disruption. He's going to put things back together. Uh, We skip all the way through the Old Testament uh, and we get to the person of Jesus. And so we've just celebrated Advent, uh, the coming of Jesus, uh, his birth, his entrance onto the scene. Uh, From the very moment that Jesus himself comes, uh, we know that this is a big deal. Jesus is given two names. He's given the name Yeshua, or Jesus, which means the Lord saves. He's also given the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so in the person of Jesus, we see God himself entering into the world in a very evident and clear form of disruption. There's been this disruption of death and sin and moral decay, but now here is God himself, the ultimate source of goodness and authority, present on this earth. As Jesus lives his life, he teaches a lot of things that are disruptive to this way of sin. He teaches things like forgiveness for enemies. He teaches things uh, like it's more important uh, to be faithful. It's more important to be just. It's more important to love the poor than it is to make sure all of your religious I's are dotted and T's are crossed. Uh, Jesus, point, Jesus teaches some very disruptive things, not only to the culture of Rome at the time, but the culture of Israel, the religious world at that time. So even in his life, not only his existence, but his teaching is disruptive, but then he dies But I think we all know the story next. He comes back to life. He raises from the dead. Now this is the ultimate act of disruption because since the time of the garden, uh, the ultimate end for all things has been death. 
There's been no one who's been able to escape death until the person of Jesus. He breaks this pattern. He disrupts this pattern of death, which in some mysterious uh, way, which is kind of hard to understand yet is awesomely true, he then opens the door for all of us to enter into uh, that disruption, that, this disruption of life that breaks death. And this is the gospel, right? This is the core of the Christian message, that Jesus, in his life, death, and resurrection, disrupts this sin and death and way of, thing, way of life that is not as God intended. The person of Jesus disrupts that. And so, uh, this is the gospel, right? Um, maybe a, a clear way to, to read this is in uh, the book of Colossians. Paul says this, Uh, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, so this is when you were living within the rules of the garden, the rules of Genesis 3, God made you alive with Christ, so death to life. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them by triumphing over them by the cross. And so here in some uh, theologically rich yet ultimately mysterious way, uh, through the person of Jesus, we see this massive disruption of the way of death and the way of sin in an invite, invitation for us to join. And so we can leave it there. We can look at this big picture and we can see the story of Scripture, the story of humanity, the story of God is one of disruption. He disrupts the nothingness with creation. Sin disrupts the way that God had things in mind. But then Jesus himself disrupts that and invites you and me to join him. Uh, But I think we can take it a little bit further than that. I think we can dig in uh, just a little bit deeper. Uh, Paul understood this. Paul got this. Paul saw uh, that there was this power in understanding the disruption of the gospel. And he began to realize and articulate in some of the letters that he wrote uh, that this is a reality that he himself could not only step into and live, but he could also be uh, a messenger of this disruption. So turn with me to 2 Corinthians 2. We're going to finish here. Uh, in this in this passage, Second Corinthians two. So, as you're going there, just a brief uh, word about the context of the book of Second Corinthians. Um, Paul was writing this letter to Christians living in the city of Corinth, uh, and since he is sort of the authority of the Christian church at the time, uh, there were occasions in which Paul had to. Uh, not only build up churches, but he also in times had to discipline and had to challenge them to rethink the things that they were doing. This is what Paul had to do with the church in Corinth. Uh, And if any of you have ever been disciplined or reprimanded by somebody, our natural response is to say, who are you to say anything? And so Paul says, well, I'll tell you who I am to say anything. I'll write an entire letter defending my authority and defending my role as this apostle. And so when Paul talks about the we in 2 Corinthians, quite often he's talking about himself and his missionary cronies that were going around traveling and teaching, okay? But it's not a stretch at all for us to kind of take a bigger picture of this and see uh, the word we here to talk about any Christian 
Anybody who's a member of the body of Christ, anybody who's put their faith in the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus, uh, it's not a stretch for us to say that we can also be this we. (laughs) If we are, like Paul, faithfully striving uh, to live out the gospel. Okay, So there's a specific context, but I think we can take a little bit of a broader view. So in in, uh, chapter 2, he's talking about some of his journeys, uh, and then go to verse 14. He says this, But thanks be to God, who always leads us captive in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, we are an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Okay, so Paul has a couple uh, illustrations here in this passage that's critical for us to understand. Um, in the first century world, uh, the Romans were very popular uh, for not only their victories that they would often have as they would come into a city or a town or a country and defeat them, but they're also very famous for the celebrations that they would throw to celebrate themselves and their victories. And so there's these famous uh, historical writings about the Romans defeating a city uh, and then the general or the commander of that army leading a parade through the streets of the very city that he just defeated with all of his prisoners behind him as a way to say, boom, I'm the captain now, right? Walking through the city, uh, showing off what he has done with all these prisoners uh, who are essentially humiliated behind him. There is also a tradition uh, that in order to celebrate, they would also line the parade route uh, with incense that would burn in many ways as worship up to their gods, but mostly just burn to smell good because they wanted to celebrate what they're doing. And so, uh, like any parade, uh, parades draw crowds, right? And so people would come, uh, and those who were supporters of Rome would be cheering uh, this commander as he went through. Those who were not supporters of Rome would still be cheering because they didn't want to die, right? But uh, for the most part, you had people that would gather to see these parades and to see these prisoners that were traveling. This is the image uh, that Paul is using here. Now, Paul often speaks of uh, life and death in this very black and white term. For him, uh, if you have put your faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you are alive. But he also uses the language of slavery, He talks about how we are slaves of Christ. This is the opposite of people who are dead. And to him, you're dead if you have not put your faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and you are a slave to sin. Okay? So, even when you're alive, you're still a slave. You have been redeemed from the slavery of sin, and now you are a slave to life, which is a good thing to be a slave to. And so in this illustration, right, Paul says we are being led, we are this parade route that's going through a city that is bringing the goodness, the good aroma of the gospel. Parades in themselves are disruptive events, right? 
sometimes you see those pictures of the ticker tape parades going down uh, what are they, the, the Canyon of Champions or whatever they call it in, in New York where all of the businesses stop doing business and they throw confetti out the windows and everyone stops what they're doing to watch this parade go by. When there's parades, they disrupt the flow of traffic. They disrupt what's happening in the city. Uh, what Paul is saying is that when he is faithfully doing his ministry, when he is living out the reality of the gospel, he is essentially a parade that causes people to take notice of what he's doing and what he's teaching and what God is doing through him. He also uses this illustration of smell. There are few things that are as disruptive as smell. Either bad, like a rotting animal, or anybody remember that bakery that used to be on like 28th Street in Burlingame, and every time you drive by there, it just smelled like bread, <laughs> and you couldn't stop, but you really wanted to? <laughs> uh, there's not a whole lot that's more disruptive than smell, and so Paul says, we are this parade, and we are this smell. In other words, when Paul is faithfully living the life of the gospel, other people that he encounters, the world and the culture around him, is forced to stop and say, what is going on here? Now, some of them are not going to choose to accept what he's doing, right? Some of them are going to reject him. These are the people that he says it's an aroma of death to. But some are going to say, yes, I want that. And to them, Paul is an aroma of life. But either way, whether they choose yes or no, they can't ignore him because, this is key, because Paul understands that when we faithfully live out the gospel, when we choose the things of the gospel, when we choose goodness and mercy, when we reject sin, when we reject immorality, when we reject rage, when we reject pornography, when we reject... uh, holding people up on pedestals uh, because of what they do or what they look like, when we reject the things of the world and choose the things of God, we are living in a way that is disruptive. And when we live in a way that's disruptive, people are forced to adjust. They don't always choose to do what we're doing, but they're at least forced to take notice. And at the core of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, is this idea that the gospel, living the way of God, is ultimately disruptive to a culture that still thinks that sin is writing the rules. The person of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus tells us that that's no longer the case. (laughs) That God is writing the rules. But so often we live in a culture in a world that still is playing by the old set. And so when we live the gospel, we're directly challenging that way of life. And a challenge to that way of life causes people to adjust. Because the gospel is disruptive to a world that chooses to play by a different set of rules. And so, let's bring it home in these last couple minutes to you and me. We are not Paul. You are not Paul. I am not Paul. Paul seemed to really like, uh, like going into the middle of a city and like yelling as loud as he can that 
Uh, everything that they were doing is wrong. And you read this in Athens and Paul making big stinks about everything and getting thrown in jail. And he's like, yeah, I'm in jail, punk. What now? Paul really liked doing that sort of thing. And Paul really liked making a big deal about stuff uh, and being really loud about uh, his faith. (laughs) But I'm guessing that probably not all of you (laughs) find yourself in that same place, right? Uh, To live a life that forces people to take notice and to adjust is like, the worst thing that some of you could think of, right? For people to notice you at all is the worst thing that you could think of, but especially for people to like question you, like, what the heck? I don't want to do that at all, if that's what Christian faith is about. What about uh, this? <laughs> Perhaps uh, for you, this doesn't mean standing up in the middle of a city and getting thrown in jail and uh, running for office so that you can criticize everything else that's going on in the world. Maybe that's you, and go for it. Uh, but I'm guessing that a lot of us aren't. And so perhaps for you, to be someone who understands the disruptiveness of the gospel simply means to live the type of life where you are quietly, privately, humbly, yet consistently making choices and decisions that are reflective of the gospel rather than reflective of the old rules. Maybe for you, that means, as a parent, you are committed to teaching your children the way of hope, the way of love, the way of faithfulness, the way of commitment, the way of honor, the way of respect. Maybe for you, as a coworker, that means quietly choosing the way of God when you interact with the people around you. Maybe for you personally, that means, right, it's New Year's, right, so we're making resolutions. Maybe for you, that means looking into this year and making decisions that this year, I am going to stop that. This addiction has been dragging me down for years and years and years. I'm going to stop that. And you know what? Stopping that addiction perhaps is disruptive to a culture and to a society that says, not only is this addiction good, but this addiction is normal. When you stop that, you become disruptive. When you become disruptive, people take notice. Maybe that's in a small way. Maybe that's just one person. Maybe that's a family member. But the call of the gospel is for us to fully understand the reality that when we truly live out the way of Jesus, when we truly play by the new set of rules, we are living an essentially disruptive life to a culture, to a world, to a society uh, that still wants to play by the old set of rules. And so for you, as we head into a new year, what is one way? What is one change that you need to make in your life? What is one thing that you need to uh, go full into? (laughs) Maybe you've just been dabbling, but now it's time to jump on board. What is one way in which you can make an adjustment or a a tweak to who you are so that your life becomes uh, this source of disruption because of the gospel? It doesn't have to be loud. No one has to know about it. (laughs) But perhaps this is one way that you personally can step into the gospel in the year 2016. We're going to dig more into this as the year goes on, but let's start here. Following the way of Jesus is ultimately following a a disruptive way of life to a culture that says 
the old rules still apply? And so in which way can you begin to take that seriously? Let's pray. God, as we leave this place and as we head into uh, a new year, we pray that this becomes a reality for us, that we recognize the disruptiveness of the gospel, that we recognize that when we follow you, sometimes that means making decisions and choices that are counter-cultural. But help us to do so because we are faithfully desiring to be people who live in a way that other people have to adjust to your gospel because of our actions and our words and our thoughts and our decisions. Help us to be parents who teach this to our children. Help us to be sisters and brothers who teach this to our siblings. Help us to be grandparents who teach this to our grandchildren. Help us to be people who keep this a priority in all that we do and we say. We pray all of these names, all of these things in your very disruptive and beautifully constructive name. Amen. As we end today, may we understand the constructively disruptive power of the gospel and live, think, and believe in a way that demands a response. Grace be with you.